Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And welcome to our fifth installment on the American Revolutionary War. What are we titling this episode, Andrew? We're going to keep it simple and we're going to go with Saratoga. Now, when we started doing this series, Andrew, we had the past four episodes, we thought we could cover it in one episode. And here we are, our fifth episode. So we're kind of lagging behind a little bit, but I think it's good. We get to cover a whole bunch of great detail on these battles and troop movements and the political situation, and especially what's going on back with the Six Nations, which are kind of in an upheaval right now. We left off last time where the British had been repulsed from Fort Stanwix thanks to the help of the Oneida town of Oriska. And so Barry St. Ledger, the British commander, and his forces are fleeing back to Lake Ontario after they heard false reports that Americans led by Benedict Arnold were on their way. So St. Ledger's new plan is to travel north back into Canada and then go around south down Lake Champlain to Ticonderoga to meet back up with Burgoyne. But you're going to find out that he's not going to make it in time. Joseph Brant is not going back with St. Ledger, however. Joseph Brant is the captain of the Mohawk forces who had been going along with St. Ledger to try and recapture the Mohawk Valley. But he's got some bones to pick. You see, during this whole commotion... The Mohawk camp was raided by soldiers at Fort Stanwix, and a ton of their supplies were stolen. Brant is really irate, especially at the Oneida people who have joined with these traitorous Americans, and it's too much for him. Well, you have to remember, Andrew, a lot of these uh, Indian warriors, Brant had told them, we are going to go and raid these people's goods while they'll be out fighting. And basically, the complete opposite ended up happening to them. So this makes Brant really look bad in the eyes of the warriors, When they come back and everything that they've accumulated the past few months here in this campaign has just been taken right back. And Brandt, before this, did not have a good relationship. In fact, he hated Hanieri, who we talked about before, was one of the leaders of this Oneida village. And so he takes it upon himself to do something that has not been done in generations and maybe longer. And that's that one of the nations of the Iroquois is going to purposely attack another nation's town. The Oneida are totally caught unaware. Many of the people in the town are tortured or carried off as captives. And then after pretty much looting the entire village, he continues east into Mohawk territory to try and evacuate his own people. Remember, the Oneida are west of the Mohawk, and the Mohawk are closer to the Albany area. They know that this area is highly volatile right now with a lot of patriots, and he thinks, well, we've just attacked the Oneida, so they're probably going to attack our villages next. We need to evacuate and go hook up with Burgoyne or move to Canada. Now, Brant attacking the Oneida uh, seemed like the right thing to do in his head, but what he's actually going to do is he's going to drive the Oneida to getting more involved in the Revolutionary War. At the time, there's still a lot of people that are still really stressing the fact, let's try and stay neutral, everybody. But then all of a sudden, you have this British sympathizing force of Brants that come through and kill and torture a whole town. Now, what's the practical thing to do? Let's join the Americans. And a lot of them did. Hanieri and Two Kettles Together and others head back east to try and hook up with General Gates and General Schuyler to try and help out. As they're going here, they hear that their town has been raided, and so they decide to do exactly what Brant thought they were going to do. They attack the Mohawk villages. 
The main Mohawk town was called Kanajahori, and the Americans and the Oneida looted together. Very interestingly, they split the spoil evenly. The Oneida were told by the Americans that, hey, if you guys lost an ox or a sheep, a pig, a cow, a horse, anything from the Mohawk raiders attacking your town, take two for your compensation. They stole from you, you guys get two more for your trouble. While they're there, Brant's forces aren't able to evacuate everything and everyone. They capture large hordes of coins, silver, gold rings, other jewelry, and clothing. Hanyeri, who goes by several names, one of them was also he who takes up the snowshoe, and his wife, two kettles together, they actually move in to Mary Brant's home. That's Joseph's sister, and she was the wife of Sir William Johnson. Anything that the Brants left behind as property... Two kettles together and Hanieri take over and they live right in their house, which seems kind of fitting. There's an interesting rumor, Caleb, and I'm not sure if you've ever heard this before. Thanks to the miracle of the internet and Twitter and Facebook, I've had a chance to connect with some members of the Oneida Nation. And one guy in particular is a direct descendant of Hanieri and Two Kettles Together. And he told me that in their family there's a rumor that Joseph Brandt was actually the son of Hanieri. Caleb's nodding his head with big saucer eyes right here. I've tried to look for documentation, and there's almost none to be had. The only thing I could find of substance was that Joseph Brandt's father's name and Hanieri's native name are very similar. You look at them together, the meanings are very similar, the spelling's very similar. So it could be a coincidence, but uh, this... Oneida man that told me said that's the rumor that we've heard and he said if you look at the ages it matches up. Hanieri was an older man in his late 50s at the time and Joseph Brandt was a younger man so it could have happened and so you could have had a lot of bad blood going on here and we do know that in Iroquois society the father was not necessarily a person that was hugely involved in your life it's true because you would marry into a clan so a lot of times the wife's family her uncles and brothers and father would have more of a fatherly role at least a fatherly role that we would think of today in that child's life mm -hmm. so no proof it's it's a family story but if you look at it that way that makes for a very uh interesting uh thanksgiving dinner around the two of them so We'll leave it at that, and don't worry, we're still going to be talking a lot more about both these guys as we go along. Now, other colonists use this opportunity to enrich themselves as well, Caleb, because, hey, you've got a couple towns totally abandoned now. The Mohawk have gone to flee to Canada or to join up with John Burgoyne. What would you do if there was just a town of uh, goods sitting around, Caleb? You mean if I uh, didn't have very good scruples, I would probably get all my wagons and go down there and start loading it up with as much stuff as I could. And that's exactly what people begin to do. If I didn't have scruples. Yes, of which course. Which, of course, I do. Yes. <laughs> Colonists and the Oneida and other people start going in to grab anything that wasn't nailed down and some things that were nailed down. A Mohawk town near Fort Butler was sacked. And the interesting thing is when you think of a town, the way that... Mohawk villages have progressed to this point are not like as we pictured when we first started talking about our episode with these massive longhouses with palisaded walls. These are much more colonial style houses now. Some of them are still longhouses, but 
they're they have a much different feel. For one, they've got livestock. Yeah, uh, they've adapted into a lot of the more uh, European styles of farming, having pens for livestock and things like that. They're not completely doing three sisters gardens anymore. They're you know they actually have plows a lot of them and they're tilling the fields. The houses, Andrew, some of these houses have glass windows, which many colonists didn't even have that. They also had barns and, like Caleb said, sleighs with horses to pull them through the snow. So they were pretty significant towns. Don't even think of them as small villages. So finally, on September 8th, about 100 Mohawks that had abandoned these towns met up with John Burgoyne as he was advancing south. They asked his permission to go to Canada to stay there with their northern Mohawk cousins. And they asked for assistance in food, clothing, housing. All they could leave with was what they had. So they they were pretty much destitute at this point. So what's Burgoyne going to do, though, Andrew? Because he's already having trouble feeding his army. And now he has all these refugees. And he needs to keep a good relationship with the Mohawk. But yet he doesn't want to take the food from his soldiers' mouths and give it to the refugees. Yeah, so soon these people become a real hot potato. And so he's trying to pass the responsibility on to the bureaucrats, and the bureaucrats are dragging their feet, saying we don't have money for this. Finally, a British officer named uh, Klaus takes it upon himself to actually provide for them out of his own funds and help settle them up in Canada to help them get jump-started. But let's get back to what's going on with Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne as he continues south, Caleb. He's set out with over 8,000 men and about 850 native indigenous warriors. Many of them, large percentage, are these Canadian Mohawk, but he's also got some Huron and Ottawa and other nationalities. So we said that Burgoyne's running into some trouble, but how much trouble, Caleb? How successful has he been as he advances south? Now, Andrew, when we talked last week, we mentioned how Burgoyne took Fort Ticonderoga basically without even a fight. They took Sugarloaf Hill, put some cannons up there, and all the Americans ran with their tails between their legs, splitting up, some of them heading into Vermont, heading to the east, and some of them heading south, trying to meet up with some of the the southern American forts. Burgoyne had some of his flying columns chase after these people to see if they could catch them. And they chased them into a place called Hubberton in Vermont, which is kind of an interesting thing because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Andrew, but this battle at Hubberton is the only battle that ever took place in Vermont in the Revolutionary War. Wow. I did know that. Yeah. Well, I thought that was interesting. Throughout the entire Revolutionary War, this was the only battle fought in Vermont. So to chase after these Americans, Burgoyne sent General Friedrich Adolf Reitzel. That's a pretty cool German name. And he sends in the British brigadiers and General Simon Fraser to surprise the Americans. And he's also got about 100 native scouts going along with him as well. Now, for the Americans, they had, and we've, we've heard about these people before, the, the Green Mountain Boys. Yeah, Ethan Allen. They were the famous group of separatists that were trying to find independence themselves for Vermont. And so Vermont was like this quasi-semi-independent republic that hadn't really officially joined the Americans, but kind of had at this point. And there were a few other people. There was the 11th Massachusetts Regiment and a few other light regiments. And they were working as the rear guard to help the Americans escape. And this battle is going to take place with basically the rear guard of the Americans and Burgoyne's flying column. The Patriots were able to hold their position nearby a Monument Hill for 
not very long, an hour, until Baron Rietzel apparently started singing a hymn. And I can just picture this. You're being held off by these American uh, skirmishers, and he starts singing this German hymn. And then all of a sudden, all of his men start singing the hymn with him in their great deep soldierly voices, and they just start marching through, singing this <laughs> this Lutheran hymn, marching forward, and uh, it's so intimidating that eventually that's how they take a ground, just a, a full-on march singing. I found uh, from personal experience that shooting somebody, even when they're singing, shuts them up pretty quick. Shuts, shuts them up. <laughs> I actually haven't found that out uh, from personal experience. Don't, don't be mistaken, but I imagine it would. So they ended up all retreating. The British had pretty heavy losses at this. They actually had nearly double the amount killed and wounded than the British. The Americans ended up having 41 killed, 96 wounded, and losing 234 captured, which sounds pretty bad. But in doing so, they made it so nearly the entire army was able to retreat. And we're going to see in future episodes, this army is going to be able to come back and throw down against the British. So at the time, everybody's looking at this like the Americans have lost, they're losing, and the British are feeling pretty good. But we're going to see that even though a lot of the Americans are feeling kind of down right now, these few hundred men that sacrificed themselves, the Green Mountain Boys and such, are actually uh, in a lot of ways going to save this war. It kind of reminds me of World War II. And when you had the Nazis invade Russia, and the Russians just kept retreating further and further back because they knew that Russia was this vast open wilderness and it was just going to eat up the army and eventually they could fall back to a position where once the weakened forces arrived, they would be able to push back. And I think that that's kind of the strategy that works for them. Even though at the time, General Schuyler was being labeled as a totally incompetent general and possibly even a traitor in the pay of the British. And people back in Congress are calling for him to be replaced at this time. Now, after the small victory for the British, we'll call it, Burgoyne continues to advance south, but he's basically come to a crawl at this point, Andrew. We're talking July in 1777. For the same reasons as every other battle we've talked about for the past few hundred years, logistical difficulties, not enough wagons, not enough horses, not enough food. And the Americans make things incredibly difficult. General Schuyler orders his wife to go out into the fields and chop down every single fruit tree, gather everything in from the harvest that you possibly can. Everybody burn their fields. Make sure that they don't have anything. And then in the meantime, they burn every single bridge from Ticonderoga as they retreat down to Albany. They cut down massive trees. And we remember how we said that the American forest at this time had old, huge forests with these giant trees. And when they would cut the trees down, they would make sure that they fell in such a way, Caleb, that the branches faced towards the approaching army. Not only that, but when the trees fell down, the branches would drive down into the road, sometimes five, six feet. So even if you cut up the, the big tree itself, you couldn't just roll it or pull it with horses because it would be stuck into the mud. So you would have to chop up every single limb off the tree then remove the tree. Then you'd have these razor-sharp spikes sticking out of the ground you'd have to remove so that your horses could walk over it. And if there's one of these cut down every single 50 yards for your march uh, down to Albany, it's just 
going to be very frustrating. And then you have to expend all these resources for men to clear these things. But that's okay, right? Because Gentleman Johnny's not worried. He still has the superior force. He knows that he's got St. Ledger coming, and he knows that he's got General Gates coming from the south. Then on July 27th, 1777, Burgoyne had to deal with an interesting issue. The issue with Jane McRae was she died. And ordinarily, you're like, okay, whatever. People die in war all the time. Innocent civilians die. What's the big deal? Well, we'll get to that. Jane was born in 1751. And what happens to her remains cloudy because there's tons of conflicting accounts. But what we do know is she definitely is dead. Her father and herself were staunch loyalists. And they lived in Saratoga. But her brothers had joined the American cause, and one of them was a colonel named John McRae. I'm going to mention a bit about him later, Caleb. And she was engaged to a British officer who at this moment is with Burgoyne's army at Ticonderoga. So she decides that she's getting away from these American rebels, and she's going to go to Ticonderoga to be with her love, because they can then get married, and everything will be happy and fine. But on the way there, she stops by the village at Fort Edward, and she stays with her friend, Sarah McNeil. And while they're there, some British allied Native Americans carry out a raid. They kill a settler named John Allen and his family. And in the commotion, they take Jane and Sarah as prisoner. And it's really debatable on what happens next. She tries to say that she's on the British side and she's trying to go to meet up with the British army. And something happens where the Native Americans possibly start fighting over her. One person says, I'm going to take her back. And another person says, no, I'm going to take her back and get a reward. And somehow she ends up killed. And after she's killed, they scalp her head and take it back to General Burgoyne. And allegedly somebody recognizes her hair. Well, I think we should point out that at some point she also got a musket ball through her head. Yes. So when these Indian warriors show up at camp and they see this officer's fiance with a bullet in her head and her scalp off, Indians claiming that there was an accident. She accidentally got shot in the head. And then they said, well, why did you scalp her? Yeah. Uh, You can see why this is going to cause some issues, especially because if you recall Burgoyne, when he started this campaign, what was one of the things he made clear for all of his uh, Indian scouts? He said, you can kill whoever you want, but I want you to bring back prisoners alive. We're not going to kill innocent people, women, and children. And now one of their officers' fiance is dead. But what's he going to do, though? This is a, I mean, and let's think about this from his standpoint. Okay, whether they killed her intentionally or not, they're both going to have negative consequences. So Burgoyne is going to be forced to choose, okay, do I want to punish these Indians because they most likely killed her, probably by accident, not realizing that she was on their side, and then lose all the support for all of these other Indians here? Or do I want to sweep this under the rug But then all of the loyalist officers are going to be resentful to Burgoyne because they feel like he's just sweeping this under the rug to not have a conflict. And then, even if he does that, word is going to get out to all the other loyalists, hey, guess what? It doesn't matter if you're a loyalist. You better watch out because it doesn't matter who you say, whose side you're on. And so a lot of people are going to say, maybe we'd be better off just joining the Americans. So what does Burgoyne choose, Caleb? He decides to just let the whole thing blow over. Her fiancé was understandably a bit bitter about this. Uh, Supposedly, after this incident, he never marries for the rest of his life. The Americans definitely run with this story. 
it becomes sensational. And as it travels from town to town, it just gets embellished more and more. They start talking about how beautiful this sweet, innocent girl was with her beautiful red hair. And then in another town, it's beautiful golden hair. And then in another town, it's beautiful brunette hair. So they actually don't even know what her hair color was because there's every different story. She had beautiful blue eyes. No, she had deep brown eyes. It doesn't matter. The point is... The newspapers start running with this loyalist girl trying to make it to her love gets killed by Burgoyne savage Indians is how they play it up. And it makes it all the way to papers down into Virginia and the South. But it's okay, right? Because he's got the Native Americans on his side now, so he doesn't have to worry about them leaving, right? Well, yeah, he intentionally didn't punish any of the Native American warriors because he didn't want them to leave. But what's going to end up happening is, hey, fall's coming around and it's time for us to head back home and start hunting season and uh, getting the crops in for winter. So almost overnight, the majority of his Indian forest just gets up and leaves. But then it's okay because Burgoyne gets good news. He receives word from General Howe that he's going to be heading up from New York City with thousands of men to reinforce him and take Albany to take the pressure off. That sounds like good news. Uh, except that the message actually said that he's taking the majority of the forces in New York City and he's going to be attacking Philadelphia to try and capture George Washington. So he's heading the completely opposite direction. Correct. So he's basically telling him you're on your own. Yes. Burgoyne is really feeling the pinch now. He doesn't have supplies. He has, we mentioned all these dragoons that are without horses. Walking walking with their saddles over their shoulders. So they need horses. And he realizes, okay, I need like 1,400 horses just to get enough to move these supplies and mount the dragoons. And he's got this guy traveling with him. And this guy kind of reminds me of like Grima Wormtongue, Caleb, from Lord of the Rings. This sneaky, slave-owning land-speculating, grubby guy named Skeen. Skeen lived in a place called Skeensboro, which was up in northern New York. Is it named after his family? Yes. And he had fled to Canada to join the British, and he was hoping to actually eventually be made governor of New York once the British retook this area. And he was telling Burgoyne that the land is just full of loyalists and loyal Native Americans that are just going to flock to Burgoyne And his ranks are going to swell by the thousands, and they're going to take all of New York without a problem. And so he's like the official ambassador guide as he's going down. And Skeen tells him, you know, head over into the Vermont Hampshire Grants, and you'll be able to get all kinds of supplies from there. The land is just flowing with milk and honey and horses, so why don't you do that? And Burgoyne said no at first, but once he heard that no help was coming, he decided to send this raiding party to an area known as Bennington. And they march out with about 1,400 men, along with a lot of northern Canadian Mohawk scouts. But little did they realize that there was a man named John Stark raising a New Hampshire militia. Tell us about the interesting life of John Stark, Caleb. For starters, Andrew, have you ever seen a New Hampshire license plate? Yeah. Now, there, there's a, a little phrase on a New Hampshire license plate that stands right out. And what is it, Andrew? Live free or die? Live free or die. It's, you know, it's a famous patriotic quote, but nobody seems to know who said it. Guess what? This is a quote from John Stark. Maybe people that actually live in New Hampshire know that because he's more of a, a, hero, you know, a well-known hero in New Hampshire. But yes, that's a quote from John Stark. And what an amazing guy he was. 
Uh, I wish we could do a whole episode on him, but he ties into the story here because he comes from kind of a humble family, kind of just put into a situation, and he rises to the top. At, at 23, Andrew, he's out hunting, and he gets captured by the St. Francis Indians. He's made to run the gauntlet, like we've seen many times for many people to get captured. They're forced to run the gauntlet to show how strong they are. And the story has it that halfway through the, the gauntlet, when people are beating him with sticks and clubs, he grabs one of the sticks from one of the smaller people and starts beating all the people around him that are there in the gauntlet. Everybody circles him, and he's fighting them all off with it. And then he starts taunting them, and he tells them, I'm going to kiss and make love to all your women tonight. And uh, the clan mothers stand up, and they stop everybody because everybody's just so impressed with how brave this fighter is that he is going to fight off all 30 people running through the gauntlet. So they end up uh, adopting him. More than a year passes, and he ends up getting exchanged for uh, a mule. Some, some <laughs> Massachusetts people come through, and they end up trying to find some other people, some of their family members that had been captured, and they see him there. And they were nice enough to, uh, to ransom him. But he, re- he retained warm form. Uh, he, re- he retained good feelings for the chief and the whole tribe. And later in his life, there was a, a war party sent to attack the village, and he wouldn't do it because they were all his friends and family. Throughout this podcast, Andrew, he has actually been in our podcast. We haven't mentioned him. During Fort William Henry, back in the French and Indian War, he was a captain at Fort William Henry, Fort's defense. And as he was fighting there, a musket ball flew through and hit him in the chest, and everybody thought that he was dead. They opened up his shirt, and the musket ball didn't even break the skin. What? It most likely was a spent musket ball shot from a thousand yards away or something, but it knocked him over. And he gets up, and he's got this musket ball on him. So what's going to happen? Everybody starts to, you know, whisper rumors that he's immortal. He's blessed by the gods. He's lucky. And yeah, I hope he kept that musket ball as like a necklace or a lucky charm, because there's not too many people who get hit with one. But yeah, he just had a bruise on his chest. And this guy, he is a big fan of freedom. Even though he's not really being involved with the Congress down in Philadelphia, he takes it upon himself to start going around and asking neighbors and things like that to, hey, if anybody comes here, let's fight them back. And this spreads and spreads, and they realize they don't have an official general. And so they say, well, let's vote on a general. And everybody unanimously raises their hand. Because who's the toughest guy around? For John Stark. So John Stark has just become the general of the New Hampshire army. Would you say he's the warden of the north? (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's the warden of the north. But the interesting thing about this, Andrew, is General Stark doesn't get a lot of credit in the Revolutionary War because he was never appointed by Congress. He, it was a bunch of people up in the boonies in New Hampshire and Vermont, and they raised their own army and appointed their own general. And this tough SOB is going to raise 1,600 men. That's 10%, Andrew, of all men in the New Hampshire grants. He gets them in six days to make his own army, and Burgoyne has no idea that there's going to be an army of 1,600 men here in New Hampshire. Like you said, this Grima Wormtongue character has been telling him everybody there is loyalist, it's going to be great. And within a week, this random guy who owns a mill in New Hampshire 
is going to have an army of 1,600 trained rangers, and they're going to meet Burgoyne, and he is going to be in for one heck of a time. Not only those guys, but since John Stark had friendly relations with the Native Americans in the area, there was a group of Native Americans known as the Stockbridge Indians. They also called them the Praying Indians. These were New England Native Americans that had become Christian and had good relationships with the Colonials, and they come with Stark's army to reinforce him as well. And they finally meet up at a place called Bennington, which a lot of people think it's Vermont, which it kind of is, but the battle is actually fought just across the border in modern-day New York. So once Burgoyne's forces head down, they are totally surprised at Bennington on August 16th. We don't have time to go through all the details of the battle, but it's an utter disaster for the British forces. They're totally caught unaware. They just couldn't believe that such a large force appeared around them. They had 207 killed, over 700 captured, and Stark's forces lost 30. The Mohawk forces that came along lost about seven. They saw this overwhelming force and they decided uh, we're not even engaging in this battle. We're just going to stay out here in the woods and you British can worry about this. They're like, we're not dying for King George. So the few survivors flee back to General Burgoyne with zero horses, less supplies than when they left with, and 1,000 men missing. After all this debacle, all but 50 of Gentleman Johnny's native forces left. You guys don't know how to fight a battle. We're out of here. Then... At the end of August, Burgoyne gets more bad news. He finds out that St. Ledger has been forced to turn around and retreat from Fort Stanwix. Yeah, remember Fort Stanwix, Andrew? <laughs> yep, this is happening the same time. So it's the end of August, they're lifting the siege and heading around. So he's got no help coming from the south. He has no help coming from the west. He just lost a thousand men. He has no horses. He's got to do something because he realizes that he's on the wrong side of the river. His objective is to capture Albany, but he's on the opposite side of where the Hudson is to Albany. So he's got two choices. He can head back north and try and go back around from Ticonderoga and sail down Lake George, or he can continue to drudge through the wilderness with no roads and try and make a crossing somewhere on the river. And that's what he decides to do. And the place that he decides to cross is known as Saratoga. Now we're going to catch back up to see what the Americans are doing. Down in Albany, General Schuyler has learned that he's been replaced by General Gates for his failure to hold Ticonderoga, and they wanted him to come down to Pennsylvania to face questioning. He had better things to do, like deal with an invasion. So on September 14th, he met with 300 members of the Six Nations at a conference. Most of these were the Oneida and Tuscarora, who, as Caleb mentioned, they heavily now lean towards the Americans. There were also Onondaga and Mohawk here as well, who came to see what the Patriots were offering them. Some of the leaders that were present are people that we've mentioned before. Lewis Cook, who's the half-African, half-Native American leader of the Mohawk. Han Yeri, and another man named Peter Bread. The meeting lasted several days, presents were exchanged, speeches were given, war belts were presented, and the members of the Oneida and Tuscarora agreed. They accepted the belts and said that they would support the Americans in the coming battle. The Oneida and the Tuscarora tried to persuade the Onondaga members to join them as well. The Oneida had brought up the fact that Brant and his men had come through and killed all these people in their village, and this would be a great opportunity for them to avenge themselves against the British and against Brant. 
And also, we could probably arrange to get some of the Mohawk and Onondaga and Seneca that had been captured as prisoners by the British, and we could help send them back as go-betweens. And this might mend the wounds and stop the Confederacy from being splintered apart. We can see here that the goal really is still for unity and peace among the Six Nations. They don't want this to turn into a civil war. The Onondaga are still really iffy, and they don't want to go to either side. They really want to remain neutral. The next day, a war feast was set up. The Oneida and the Tuscarora officially declared war. The Americans handed out supplies and weapons to all the warriors, and then word arrived by messenger. Burgoyne has crossed the Hudson at Saratoga, and Americans are already engaging with him. I would say I hate it, but I don't. I like using it. I'm going to use another Lord of the Rings reference, Caleb. You know when Aragorn comes on to Theoden and he says, Gondor calls for aid, and Theoden says, and Rohan will answer. So the United and the Tuscarora immediately say, we're coming with you guys. They haul butt. They head up from Albany, and by the next day, they're there at Saratoga. It's not like this is just a couple miles away. It's a pretty good distance. I'm trying to picture in my head how far it is. If I had to guess... I think it's about 30 miles. Yeah, I, I would have guessed 40 miles. So that's, that's a long way to go in a day. This engagement is known as the Battle of Freedman's Farm. Yeah, the Battle of Saratoga, Andrew, is broken down into two separate battles, and this is the first of two. Freedman was actually a guy named John Freeman, and he was a loyalist, and he had gone up into Canada to join the British as well. And so he's actually here with this army coming down, and the battle is taking place at his home. The kind of sad thing is, in this battle, his son is going to get killed right next to him, and they never do get their home back. And about where is Freedman's Farm, if you had to look on a map, Caleb? If you're looking at a map, Andrew, and you find Albany right in the center of New York State, it's about 30 miles north of there. Burgoyne tries to slip a detachment of soldiers to go inland. They meet at the farm. There's just a whole conglomeration of American forces. Colonel Daniel Morgan is here with his men, and they begin to charge the British ranks without orders. He's just like, no, 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 you idiots. They just start charging, and then they run into the main British column, led by the British General Hamilton, and they just start getting mowed down from the counterattack. Benedict Arnold shows up. He's just turned from Fort Stanwix to come back to this event, and he helps General Morgan reorganize and reform the unit. And the British begin to set in to trenches on Freedman's Farm. Morgan's men continue to break these formations with rifle fire and sniping from the woods, and then they're joined by other detachments of seven regiments from Bemis Heights. Now, there's a young gentleman here named Christopher Perkins Caleb. He's newly married, he's about 19 years old, and he's just living south of this battlefield on a place called Stillwater, and his house actually ends up being used as a hospital. And he's under the command of John McRae, the brother of Jane. Do you know what the interesting thing about Mr. Perkins is, Caleb? No. He's our sixth great-grandfather. Oh, is this Perkinsville? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I knew that we, Grandma's family, were Perkins. So. Yes, that's him. He's right here in this battle. Oh, cool. Yeah, I left that out of the notes so that Caleb was actually surprised <laughs> when I said it. But When it, I saw Perkins, you know, it's a pretty common name, so I didn't think anything of it when I it's saw It's pretty it. common because this guy has like 27 kids or something like that. Anyway, 
Sorry, guys, please bear with us as we deal with our narcissism in the podcast. Back to the battle. For the rest of the afternoon, Americans fire and hold the British in check, but repeated charges by the Americans are repelled by British bayonets. General Arnold is leading much of the battle, but while he's doing this, he's bickering with General Gates. He's asking for more men to be thrown into the fight, but Gates says, no, uh, we need to hold some men back in reserve in case we're overwhelmed. The day kind of peters out and officially... The Battle of Freeman's Farm, the first battle of Saratoga, is a British victory because the British hold the field and the Americans have to withdraw. In reality, however, the British lose two men for every one colonial. Where does this leave Burgoyne? They may be at a stalemate, but he's lost thousands of more men. He's got more people wounded he has to take care of. He's got no supplies coming in, and he's forced to just hunker down now. And the Americans start making use of their new allies. Something the British are now entirely lacking is indigenous scouts. And so each day, as this uh, stalemate starts and the two sides set up against each other, the Oneida, led by two kettles together and her husband Hanieri and Lewis Cook and Peter Bread, they begin to send out little parties to uh, pro-British troops. Burgoyne is desperate. He's sending out men to look for food and supplies. And these make nice, juicy, soft targets for these friendly Iroquois forces. As they do this, they're also able to intercept numerous dispatches and glean mountains of intel. Anytime Burgoyne sends out a scout to head south to New York City, they get captured by the Oneida. And they promptly bring them back to the Americans to have them interrogated. Every day they're capturing people or killing people in these skirmishes. General Gates does kind of a wise thing here. He tells them that he's not going to pay for any scalps, but he will pay them handsomely for each prisoner. Their incentive is to capture people alive for intelligence. And he's not telling them they can't kill anybody. He's just telling them he's not going to pay for it. The Oneida obliged to what he says, and there's actually almost no instances in these battles, Caleb, where the Oneida or Tuscarora or the friendly Mohawk engage in any form of ritualistic torture. They go out every day, they grab some people, they bring them back. On September 24th, they go all the way around to Burgoyne's rear. They kill a dozen and wound eight. The next day, they kill two more and bring back 16. So this is just starting to hit and drain Burgoyne's forces. They have to constantly deal with these Native American attacks. Hunger setting in. Morale is sinking. Nobody can sleep at night because they're afraid of having their throat slit or being dragged off a prisoner. Burgoyne is kind of stuck because he's crossed the river, but now he has his back to the river. And then... Meanwhile, you've got SEAL Team 6 Oneida squad coming in and causing total havoc. Hanieri, at this point, is mainly coordinating big picture stuff. He's still kind of recouping from the Battle of Oriskany, because remember, he took a musket ball to the risk. But Two Kettles Together is going out on these expeditions, and she's relaying messages back and forth to the American leader. She's going from camp to camp to hand out intelligence. After a few weeks... The Iroquois allies inform General Gates, hey, look, uh, we've helped out a lot, but there's rumors that the British are going to be launching more Mohawks to attack our towns again. And we need to get back to defenses. And we also need to start hunting meat because it's, it's fall now and hunting season's upon us. And we need to make sure that we can feed our families for when winter comes. Gates doesn't really want to let them go, Andrew, but he gives them his blessing and he tells them this as they leave. Hey, 
if you get any extra deer or you know any other game i'll pay you you bring it back to us because uh we're running low on food ourselves so uh just remember us in your hunting travels and they do he also grants them all british allied iroquois that have been captured and the oneida say that they want to bring them back to use them as tokens of peace with the seneca and mohawk and cayuga thinking that this will help restore the great law of peace. Gates also gives them all the ammunition they want for their hunting expedition, as well as other supplies. But they didn't all go, Andrew. Right. In fact, quite a few Tuscarora and Oneida decided to stay, and they're in for the long haul. They are going to stay and see this campaign through to the very end. One colonial in his correspondence when he's writing remarks, these were brave men, and they fought like bulldogs until Burgoyne surrendered. Let's head back down to New York City. We mentioned that General Howe has left for Philadelphia, but he didn't take everyone. There's a small contingent of British regulars there under the command of General Henry Clinton to defend the city. General Clinton sent a letter to Burgoyne, Andrew, and it was received just after the first battle at Saratoga, the one at Freedman's Farm. And he asks Burgoyne if he could head up from New York City with a few thousand men to reinforce him. Burgoyne wrote back and said, Do it, please. (laughs) The problem is, Andrew, is this is taking place in October. When we're recording this episode, it's just Halloween has just passed in 2017. The leaves are gone. The nights are getting down to uh, 30 degrees. It's getting cold. And soon enough, in November, it's going to start snowing here in New York. So winter is coming. So unless they're going to start marching today, it's going to take them a couple weeks to get up here probably by the time they get all their logistics in order. So they've got to leave right away. Then that doesn't leave them a very big window. Burgoyne thinks if he could just hold out a few more days until Clinton arrives, maybe, just maybe, he can salvage this expedition. If not, they're either going to have to punch their way out and make a retreat for Canada or attack the Americans head-on. Meanwhile, he's facing huge numbers of men deserting and heading up to Canada or crossing over to the American lines. He gives the order that any person caught leaving will be whipped. And we're not talking like a few lashes, like one guy he gives like a thousand lashes. But that's not enough to keep a group of Canadian wagoneers leaving. The majority of people, Andrew, will die after receiving sometimes no more than a hundred lashes. Because once you get past even 30 lashes, the skin is gone on your back and then you get infected and uh, you die. So it would basically be a death sentence to to give somebody a thousand lashing. But this group of Canadian wagoneers decides to cut their chances and they leave. Burgoyne is so mad that he talks to the few Mohawk and Native allies that he has left and he says, chase them down, kill them, and bring back their scalps and I'll pay you for each scalp, and I'll hang them up as a warning to anybody else that wants to leave. Now, by October 3rd, Burgoyne, Andrew, he realized that General Clinton would never arrive in time. He had already put all of his men on limited rations, food was running out, and he did not want to surrender to the Americans because he thought that these battles going on down south near Philadelphia and New York he thought that this that this war was going to be won without him. He was terrified he was going to surrender, and then the British would win, and everybody would look at him as being the only person that failed in the Revolutionary War. But things just keep getting worse for him. Everybody is rallying to the region to help knock Burgoyne out, because who doesn't want to go in and join the bandwagon when the team's running up the score on the other team? Everybody 
tunes in and becomes a fan instantly. So everybody with a tomahawk, with a musket, is coming in. White, black, and native. And I would be doing a disservice if I didn't point out that a large number of freed blacks were coming in to rally to the Patriot cause because under British rule, a lot of them had lost their freedom, especially old school freed blacks had been stripped of a lot of uh, rights to marry and own property. And Burgoyne had not a few people with him on his staff that were actually capturing blacks, free and slave, and taking them on to Canada as they went. And so they are reinforcing the ranks too. And these divisions and companies are actually very integrated with Native Americans, blacks, and whites. So it's just... A mad rush. I think that they said that up to 20,000 people are now coming in to reinforce the American ranks. So 20,000 men, Andrew, and Burgoyne, after having desertions and people killed and people wounded, he's down to somewhere around 6,000 men. So he decides he's not going to retreat. He's going to try to push and rush on the Patriots' left flank. And so this battle commences on October 7th. And people call this the Battle of Bemis Heights or the Second Battle of Saratoga is pretty much hopeless for Burgoyne. In fact, he's almost killed himself. His horse gets shot out from underneath him. He gets a bullet in his hat and in his waistcoat. He gets driven back, and the British troops gather behind a couple redoubts. A redoubt is like a temporary fortification, a mound. And they are holding their own against the Americans. But suddenly, an unexpected participant comes roaring into the battle. Yeah, that participant was the American hero, Benedict Arnold, who could not get along with the general. So he had been relieved of command because he kept contradicting the general. So he was ordered to his tent to have a timeout. And uh, Benedict Arnold, uh, he was very angry. I actually think that this may have been like the starting point when he starts to realize I'm going to fight for the British because he is pissed because he is a hero at this point. And he's been relieved of his command, and he's been told to sit out the war. He goes into his tent, and he proceeds to get skunk drunk. And then he hears that a battle has started in the morning. And he rolls out of his tent and says, I'm not sitting in this tent. And he mounts on a horse, stone-cold drunk. And people start seeing him ride out on horseback, and they start following him on a direct head-on charge to the British redoubts. They just overwhelm them. They break through the line. They're able to open up an attack on the rear. And Arnold goes over the redoubt. He takes it. And then he gets shot in the leg, shattering his bone and breaking his leg. He's finally retrieved by officers, and he has to be carried back on a stretcher. The Americans are just taking it to Burgoyne now. He's forced to fall back even further. And he realizes that he can't even cross the river anymore because General John Stark has come down with his forces and they're guarding the river on the other side. So they've cut him off, completely surrounded. The battle stops and he's forced to sit and think about what to do. He's thinking maybe, just maybe, Clinton can get here in time. So let's see what's going on with Clinton. Just a day earlier, on October 6th, Henry Clinton heads up and he captures Fort Clinton and Fort Montgomery. And this battle is incredibly complicated. I'm not going to go into details. The battle is also known as the Battle of the Clintons because there was George Clinton, who was the governor of New York for the Patriot Americans, and his brother, General James Clinton, along with General Israel Putnam, Old Putt, and they're fighting against Henry Clinton, 
So you have three Clinton generals in this battle. They were all brothers, all three of them? There were or? two brothers. And who was the other one? Not related? Not related. Oh, okay. Henry Clinton. But there's, So it, whenever you hear about General Clinton, you've got to be very specific which one, because there's three in this battle. And the American forces are forced to retreat. Uh, General James Clinton is wounded. George Clinton, the governor, and he, they have to sneak down the side of an embankment to a river to flee. And so the British actually are victorious, but they're still a long ways off, and Burgoyne doesn't know that they've been successful. He agrees to capitulate to General Gates. Burgoyne surrenders. His entire force is given over to the Americans. Thousands and thousands and thousands. An entire British army surrenders. It is the greatest American victory up to this point in the war. Up until this point in the war, Andrew, there were a lot of naysayers. A lot of people truly believed that they, the Americans could not win this war and that the British army was too well disciplined. They were the richest country in the world and they thought that it was just delaying the inevitable. At some point, okay, we, maybe we can fight off the British, but eventually they're going to take us back over and conquer us. They are the most powerful empire in the world. What makes us think that us uh, hillbillies in the forests of Ver, Vermont and New Hampshire uh, can defeat them. But then this entire army surrenders and you get people start to think, hey, we could actually win this war. And you don't just have the Americans saying that. You have frogs over in Europe saying, oh, the Americans could ruin this war. That kind of sounded more Japanese than French. Let me get a few more ho-hos. Ho-ho-ho, the Americans could win this war. That's better. So you're going to see the French and other Europeans being more willing to work with the American Congress on getting supplies, on getting weapons, on getting loans to, to, to actually pay these men because nobody's really being paid yet. This war taking up Six Nations territory that doesn't really seem to matter much in the grand scheme of things. I mean, when you hear about Revolutionary War, you don't hear anything about this part of the war. You hear about George Washington and the Delaware Crossing, things like that. You hear about Saratoga being the turning point of the war, but you don't hear about all this backstory yeah, that we've been talking about for why, three episodes. Why it becomes the turning point. Because this is when the Americans realize that they can win and the rest of the world realizing how vulnerable the British Empire is. So just before the surrender, General Gates, who's the American general here overseeing Burgoyne's surrender, and the battle kind of just falls on his lap, he writes back to Congress and he says, the six nation Indians have taken up the hatchet in our favor and has been a great service, and I hope the enemy will not be able to retreat from them. Gates writes other commands. He sends a message to Fort Stanwix and tells the commander there, he says, hey, two kettles together and her husband? You need to provide them with full provisions from the fort supplies so that their family does not go hungry for the rest of the winter. And give them three barrels of rum while you're at it. Peter Bread, who helped fight and lead forces in this battle, when George Washington hears about the great service that he's done, he hires someone to make a handsome wampum belt, and it's personally sent from George Washington to him. The generals acknowledge how much the Six Nations helped them. If we look back, not only at Saratoga, but how they helped at Oriskany and helped lift the siege of Fort Stanwix, who knows what would have happened if St. Ledger had been able to come straight down the Mohawk Valley. The American forces would have had to split in two to take on two armies at once. It really could have spelled disaster for the whole American forces, and the British could have taken over all of New York. But thanks to the members of the Oneida and the Tuscarora and other members... 
they're able to turn the whole war around. And like Caleb said, the French and eventually the Spanish and the Dutch will help come over to the other side. And if you read a history book, Caleb, who do they say is America's first ally in the American Revolution? Probably the people that gave us the Statue of Liberty, the French. Yeah, that's always who you hear. The French were America's first ally. Well, they were America's first European ally. But if you are of the opinion, which I guess Caleb and I are, that the Oneida Nation is a sovereign nation, able to make their own diplomacy and able to declare war on their own, the Oneida and the Tuscarora are actually the first allies of the United States. And they helped the Americans immensely, and they're not done in this war. I think uh, that's a good place to leave it for this week, Andrew. Next week, we're going to head down south, and we're going to figure out what's going on with that guy, George Washington. Yeah, how's he been doing? And we're also going to talk about how Iroquois corn is going to save a starving army at Valley Forge. I'd like to give several thank yous as we uh, wrap up today. Number one, to members of the United Nation. Uh, many of them have been in contact with me, just random individuals through Twitter and Facebook. And also I got to talk to some when I went to Fort Stanwix to visit. And they recommended the book Forgotten Allies by uh, Joseph Gallather and James Kirby Martin. And I used this book a lot in talking about things from the Oneida perspective in these battles. And uh, it's been invaluable. Another couple books that I'd like to recommend that we used was the With Musket and Tomahawk series by Michael Longus. And that was really a miracle, Andrew, because we were in the process of researching our podcast when we got this idea. Hey, nobody's ever done this. Nobody's ever talked about these wars that happened in uh, the northern section of the Revolutionary War. And then he comes out with this great series of books, like Andrew said, with Musket and Tomahawk. They're three short books that cover in detail all of these battles that we're talking about. So if this is something that you want to learn more about, highly recommend these books. Uh, another book that uh, I've used for several of our episodes going forward has been Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America by Bradley Kreitzer. And he's actually a fellow podcaster. He has a podcast called Wartime. So if you're interested in American wars, uh, check out his podcast too. And then also we'd like to say a thank you to our newest members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. How many we get this time, Andrew? We've got 11 new reviews this month. Nice. Which is pretty nice. They're all Americans, so you can't make any bad accents this time. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. So we have uh, one from Brian. That, that's just what it is. Brian and a bunch of periods. Alaska Snow Beast. That's a cool name. <laughs> Jake Ten Pies. <laughs> I, I think that was the son of two kettles together. <laughs> Jake Ten Pies. Hey, Jake Ten Pies. <laughs> Rosen God's Blood. Jay Shull 19. Mr. Gabe D. David B. 316. Ulster 94. Mikus Finkus. Or Mikus Ficus? I'm not sure. Fisher King NC and Billiard, or B. Hilliard, something like that. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to the clan. If you would like to join the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, we would just ask that you get on iTunes and leave us a wonderful, glowing five-star review, and we'll add your name to our website. Don't forget, you can also email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, Iroquois History and Legends. You can also message there. We, um, we post... 
resources for each episode on our Facebook page and on our website so you can get a better idea of what we're talking about. We post things like maps and bios for characters in our, in our uh, narrative. Andrew, it's currently November 2017, and something is coming up this month that happens every year here in Canandaigua, New York. That's right. It's going to be the 223rd anniversary of the Treaty of Canandaigua. That's the treaty between the United States and the Six Nations. And they meet every year in Canandaigua at the courthouse at Treaty Rock, and they brighten the covenant chain. They have a ceremony, gifts are exchanged, and it's, it's a good time for everyone to reflect on the friendship over the years. So if you live in the area and you want to see, feel free to stop by the Ontario County Courthouse. Andrew and I will be there, so maybe if by chance we run into you, we'd be happy to talk to you. I believe the ceremony starts at 2 o'clock, but they have things going on at the school in the morning, and then they also have a meeting going on in the evening at the school. So thank you very much, everyone, and we will see you next time at Valley Forge. Bye, everybody.